Lord, this morning we, uh, we truly want to hear from your word and we want to know what you have to say. Help us hear what your spirit is saying to the church here in Revelation, but also to us as your church even today. God, we pray you come back soon. Lord, that you would uh, cover us and fill us and uh, be with us this morning. Be with your people all over the world. God, those who are free and those who are not free. God, be with them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to be picking up in Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, and we're going to cover a whopping four verses. We're just going to look at the church in Smyrna this morning. And the title of the message is Faithful Until Death. Faithful until death. Just to recap, you know, a lot of people tend to be afraid of revelation, tend to be afraid of what it says, of what it means, and uh, of, of what they don't understand. Afraid of the judgment it speaks of. Uh, but we remember that if we do read it, even if we don't understand it, there's a blessing. And if we understand it, I believe there's even more of a blessing if we keep it. And that blessing is, is complete. But Revelation speaks of the judgment of the end, the judgments of the inhabitants of the earth, the final judgment of even believers and unbelievers. Uh, there's a difference there that we'll see when we get there. There's the condemnation of the enemy and the fallen angels and the similar demise of all those who would follow them. You know, we either follow Jesus in this life or really we're following Satan. There's no middle ground. There's no other choice really although the the choices to follow satan are broad the choice to follow jesus is narrow uh, but a lot of people think that god wants them to go to hell that's why they don't like the bible they don't like god but god doesn't want anybody to go to hell hell wasn't designed for us we'll see here later but again revelation isn't revelation of judgment it's revelation of jesus christ of who he is in the fold not just the lamb but also the lion not just our savior but also the righteous judge. That when Jesus makes a judgment, a determination of right and wrong, of who gets this and who gets that in the end, he's absolutely right. That there's no shortcoming, there's no bribery, there's no uh, mal, malevolence, ill will, that he is making a right determination. And because of that, I believe there's a lot of hard things to accept and to read in this book that speaks of his judgment and of his righteousness. Things that we don't like or understand about God or want to accept about him and the church and the world, about the time we live in. Even amongst believers, there's contention over what time we live in. About the end of time, about heaven, about what comes after this life even. About Christianity and even especially about our own responsibility and destiny that we have a free will that God knows what we'll choose and he wants us to choose the right thing but it's our choice where you end up for eternity solely lies on your shoulders God made it simple to choose you don't have to do anything to enter in heaven other than believe in him but if you remember revelation started out with John's vision Jesus uh, revealed among the seven lampstands, the seven stars, the specific churches where the seven lampstands and the seven stars are the leaders of the churches. But I find it interesting that Jesus says that the lampstands have no guarantee or permanence in their place that watch out if you don't repent to the churches that he has correction for, that I'm going to remove your lampstand. 
that the light is no longer going to be in you. That you, as a group of believers who claim to be the church, might not even be believing in the living God. You might be dead. You might be lost. You might be a religion only. We see that the seven church ages, based on these seven churches, the seven, uh, there are seven physical churches in, this, in that day and age. There are seven church ages throughout history, scholars believe. Some overlap, some end, and some continue to the end, even through the tribulation. Because perhaps they're not quite the church. Uh, but let's back up and look at some things. Uh, if you're listening online, in the notes uh, available on the website, uh, I have some charts here. And I don't want to get too much into it, but I think that this sort of helps set the stage for why the church ages have an importance. Because if we look at throughout all history, there have been several ages. And again, I caution you to be careful where you get your information on the end times or on the Bible. Consider the message, consider the messenger and the fruit. Um, but uh, if we look at creation, there is Adam's creation, the world was perfect, and the garden, and then there was a fall, right? And there was the age of the Gentiles. The Jewish nation hadn't existed yet, but we see God reaching out to all peoples of the world. Uh, the flood happens, there's judgment, um, uh, there's the covenant with Abraham, there's age of Israel, there's the life of Christ, there's the age of the church, and then there's a tribulation, and then there's the millennial age, the thousand year reign of Christ after all this, and then the great white throne judgment. And I'm not going to get into all the details of these to, to get lost in the weeds, and if you can't see the charts, it would be too confusing, and, and uh, honestly, if you want to know more about these things, Chuck Missler has a lot of good uh, information on them. But if we look at these things, there's these ages even in human history. That there is the innocence, the fall of man, there's conscience, there's the flood, and then there's human government, and then there's the promise with Abraham, the law of Moses, and then the age of grace, the age of the church is what we live in, that God gives grace to everybody, that we're not under law anymore. The great sacrifice was made. So we have this time when the judgment isn't happening to us, and we're given an opportunity to repent. But that time, like all times in life, is going to come to an end. That it's not grace if it continues on forever. At some point, grace turns to mercy during judgment. And if we haven't accepted God's mercy during the time of grace, then the judgment will be for us. And we see the tribulation is, in a sense, a period of when the law returns, where there's judgment. And then there's the kingdom years, when Jesus rules with an iron fist, when people will not have that free will to obey him or not obey him anymore, and righteousness will be enforced. And as we see at the end of that thousand years, uh, you know, we don't want to get into it for time, but Satan is released, and people are given one final choice. Those who are born during that time are given one final opportunity to choose Jesus or not. And the fact that that even happens, that that's even said, we see that, wow, people, the heart of us is wicked, always bent on doing evil, even after living in a perfect utopian world under the hand of Jesus for a thousand years, when given the opportunity to run away and fall, we'll fall and we'll rebel against him.
And with that, we have the seven church ages that go throughout this age of grace to where they go on throughout history. That these churches, the Ephesian church, didn't last very long. We saw it only lasted a generation or two, and then it was done. And now we're looking at uh, the, the persecuted church, the church in Smyrna. But these churches, although there is one church, there is one body of Christ, one Father, one Spirit of all, the churches have different flavors. That you and I can go to different churches, and as long as it's an actual church, they believe the Word of God, they don't just have church in their name. There's many that have that today that really are not churches of God. But the true churches of God are serving the same meal, but with different flavors. It's kind of like Taco Bell. It's all the same ingredients, three, four basic ingredients, but it's served up in a chalupa, it's served up in a Mexican pizza, or at Subway, or at McDonald's, or even the, the ingredients that you and I would make at home. We usually only have a couple different things we buy, but we put them together into different meals. And I like thinking of the churches as that way, that the true church, we're all going to speak the same gospel. We all believe in the same God. We're all part of the same body, but one's an arm, one's a leg, one's white meat, one's dark meat, so to speak. We're going to have different tastes, different flavors, and yet we're the same turkey. <laughs> we're the same body. But we see that these churches throughout John's day, these church ages throughout history, I believe can even be extrapolated, like we talked about the specific types of churches today, and that we could even, uh, like my wife brought up a question the other week when we last were in Revelation, uh, that even as believers, do you think that we could be uh, falling to each of these? And, and I believe so in some degree, yes. I don't like to take it too directly because Jesus talks about the soils, but there is a correlation there that... As believers, we are part of the church, right? The church is not an organization in and of itself. It is the people who belong to it. And so, sure, uh, we could be like the church in Smyrna. We could be like the church in Ephesus. And we might even fluctuate as people based on where we are in life. But I think, as overall, what is the course of your life like? Do you fit into one of these? As we'll see today, I don't know that that I can relate so much with the persecuted church. But I don't know that that's going to last. And if we look at all the churches, uh, at least here in Revelation, if Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, even their names have, have, have meanings associated with them. Ephesus, the desired one. Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. Remember, we just had Christmas. It was gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Myrrh was an embalming uh, uh, spice for death. Pergamos means mixed marriage. Thyatira is uh, Semiramis. If, I don't want to get into it for time, but there's an interesting study and look at how uh, that this actual ruler and historical legend and sort of uh, deity of the day has a connection with Babylon, with uh, the god Dagon. You know, God had uh, Jonah come out of the fish's mouth to reach the Babylonian people. And then God was trying to say, look, you worship a fish god, but I control the actual fish. And here comes, uh, and I know a whale's not a fish, but you know what I mean. But Ishtar, where we get Easter, right? Ishtar was uh, a Babylonian myth of uh, a boy who came back to life and he was a ruler and his mom and all this stuff. Um, but apparently these, these have tying in with Catholicism that on the Pope's ring is Dagon. And there's a lot of symbolism there. I don't want to get into it for uh, argument's sake or anything of that nature, but do a little research and it's kind of interesting. 
Uh, there's a church of Sardis, which means the remnant. The church of Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. And the church in Laodicea, which is the people rule. You know, the people rule can be a bad thing. You know, we have a representative republic on, a, on purpose because democracies don't last. When, when the mob rules, things get dangerous. And that's why we need to have uh, a representative republic, but that republic is failing and we've denigrated, uh, you know, descended into mob rule. There's also another thing that we can kind of think about with these churches to where the, these churches all started out believing in Jesus, but at some point in the way, at least uh, five of them, and certainly uh, at least two who have no commendation, really left the Lord. And I think uh, Chuck Mister brings this up as I was uh, looking things up. Uh, he talks about the life cycle of churches to where at first you have a people-oriented pastor. A pastor who cares about the people. And then all of a sudden, there could be one pastor or multiple pastors or just basically just the, the, the head leadership of the church. But then the leadership becomes pulpit-oriented. They just care about teaching. They just care about who's in charge, about who's giving the message. And it's not so much about whether the people are doing good anymore. It's about how good the message was and uh, how, how accepted is my speech, how far it goes. Then it becomes property-oriented, where the message doesn't even matter anymore, but it's how much do we own, how much are we in control of. Look at our empire, kingdom building. And then it's power-oriented, Pastor, where you've got that power because of your influence, because of the size of your kingdom. And he mentions the return of the Nicolaitans, like we saw last week with the, uh, or a couple weeks ago with Ephesus. And that's kind of what, where they were at. And then finally, the church decays in a political drive. I don't know if I mean the church getting involved in politics and educating its members on political things in the political sphere, but where the church itself wants political power where the church itself wants to rule over man. And obviously they've missed the whole point. They've left everything and looked to themselves for power. But with that, there are, there are debates over the end times, as a reminder. There's arguments on both sides. There's different views. You know, I have a, a good friend out there who believes something totally different about Revelation than I do. And, you know, I'll joke with him. He's, he's, a, he's okay to be wrong. I'm all right if he's wrong. But on the other side, it's like I can't be divided with him over these things because they haven't happened yet. And you could back up his side with Scripture. And you could back up my side with Scripture. And I know he loves the Lord. And hey, uh, you know, if, if I get raptured and he's still here, he can have my house. But sincerely, there's a lot of garbage out there. Be careful where you are digging especially when it comes to end times, it comes to prophecy, it comes to revelation. Everyone and their mother has a website and a YouTube video about it. And a lot of it's whack. People get so caught up into the, the craziest of theologies about the last day to where they forget the point of the whole message. And they begin trying to convince you one way or the other as if you're not saved, if you don't hold their specific view. But prophecy does tell us of a certain future. It tells us of the future. But again, because it's describing events thousands of years ahead and when it was written, it's talking about spiritual things that happened in the physical realm. The scenarios aren't always clear as to who the specific actors are in our day, but it is clear who they are spiritually. And in a sense, 
the methods used, although we may not, you know, people were so afraid when the barcode came out that that was the mark of the beast. Barcode's not the mark of the beast, but you can see the trend of the barcode is on, on that timeline to where, yeah, this is one step, the next step in the line towards the mark of the beast, as opposed to someone needing a certain mark to buy or sell, and without it, they wouldn't be able to engage in commerce uh, but we see that, you know, you go to the airport, you know, we're getting to a point where I have to get a new ID to go to the airport because it has to be a certified ID. I can go to the TSA and have my retina scanned so I can skip the security lines. We're getting to that point to where it's very close to where uh, even with security and money and who, who, how many people use cash anymore to where you're just going to use some secure chip that's in you that no one can fake to prove that you're allied to the government. Look at China. And how they're using this social credit system. It's very, very close uh, to that final system. It's just sort of just going to take that one dude to kind of flip the switch and say, this is what we're going to do now. And people are probably going to want it too. But again, God's in control. We don't necessarily need to worry and we're not quite there yet. And this morning, uh, we want to focus on what the Lord would say to the persecuted church. In Revelation 2, uh, verse 8. And again, Lord, we just ask that you would guide us and speak to us and minister to us. And thank you that we have the truth ahead of time. We've been given the warning message before the bombing happens, so to speak. That we've been given ample time to repent and to flee the wrath to come. Uh, so we ask that for all those who haven't yet, uh, God, they would. And they would come to know their Savior uh, and the one who loves them deeply, uh, Jesus. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Revelation 2.8 says, and to, Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things say the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. But this church in Smyrna... Uh, was a Greek city. It was founded in antiquity, located at a central and strategic point on the Aegean coast. Uh, since 1930, there's even a modern city located there, uh, is Izmir in Turkey. So this city still exists. Uh, you could go there and, and see the history. Um, apparently, it was a good port city, uh, easy to defend, and had good connections to the rest of the world uh, as far as roads and travel. Uh, and so Smyrna was a a prominent city, a powerful city in its day. Uh, it was a beautiful, proud city, Barclay says, the center of learning and culture. It was proud of its standing as a city. I think of New York, you know, how proud New York is of, of, of what it is. Uh, it claimed to be the glory of Asia. And not Asia, it's China, but Turkey in that area was considered Asia back in that day. Uh, Smyrna was very rich, uh, but it was also a city that was committed to idolatry through and through. Uh, and eventually it became uh, the center of worship for the Roman emperor himself. Uh, the, Roman, the worship of Roman gods was dying out, and so they began to worship the city, uh, the, the, you know, the empire itself, 
They began to worship the uh, Caesars who had, had died, and eventually they began to worship the living Caesar as God incarnate himself. We see people, we're just, we just love to worship. We just want a king to rule over us, and we just want a king that we can worship and put up on a pedestal. Don't we do that with movie stars and pop stars and political figures these days? It's not a big leap, guys, to when the Antichrist comes and we worship him. Not me, but we as in people. And that's what the focus of the city was. Uh, in 196 BC, even 200 years before Christ, uh, they built the temple to Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome itself, uh, the spiritual symbol of the Roman Empire. And this is what began the thing. They worshiped false gods. When that got boring because the false gods didn't answer them, began to worship the things they could see, the things that did have power among them, their nation. Again, is this not a precursor to what is clearly going to happen in our world? The world is just looking for someone to worship, looking for someone to bring the whole world together, brother. No borders. Do everything that we think we need to do for the environment and for politics and for the poor and strike down the rich. and Be careful. Especially believer, be careful with what you get caught up in. But this church, the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia, have no criticism from the Lord. That amongst this wicked city, this church is living righteously. Meanwhile, the church in Sardis and the church in Laodicea, they have no commendation. They have nothing good spoken to them. Instead, it's all correction. It's all wrong. Think about that. Only two churches have no criticism. And I don't know that we like to be identified in the church in Sardis. But I think that in order to get that way, you probably do have to be persecuted. I think, unfortunately, most of the church probably falls under the Sardis and Laodicean, especially in our day and age, as we'll see when we get there. But Jesus introduces himself to this church in Smyrna as the one who is dead and came to life. That this is his ID card to them. I died and I came back to life. That I'm the resurrection. That he's the only one who overcame death and he is the one that we're supposed to identify with as believers. But I think it's interesting that the persecuted church, the one that has to be faithful until death, Jesus is reminding them, I overcame death. That before they've faced this persecution, he reminds them that death is his, that he defeated it, and that as they go to die, they can remember him and not be afraid. If they didn't have that assurance, of course you'd be afraid. Especially living in a city that comes from the word myrrh. And man, death is all around us. Death is our future. Death is our destiny as believers. And God tells us to hang on. And it's hard enough for us in America to hang on when we don't have the money to pay the electric bill, so to speak. Are we going to hang on when someone wants to behead us? Someone wants to pull your fingernails out? Someone wants to drill into your body or some other awful torture method? Pull your teeth out? Gouge your eyes out? Hurt your kids? Ravage your wife? Are you going to hang on? Am I going to hang on until death? Jesus says, Who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by a second death. That we must hang on. We must not renounce our faith no matter what comes our way. 
But he says, I know your works. And this is the same word to Ephesus. The things that they do, their enterprise as believers, he knows them. And man, I'm sure when you're being persecuted, when things aren't going well and you're trying your hardest to do the right thing, it's hard to think, man, does God even notice? Is this even worth it? What's the point? I'm just getting beat up and arrested. He says, I know your tribulation. That word flipsis means oppressing, oppressing together. It's a metaphor for oppression, affliction, tribulation, distress, and straits. And it's used many times in scripture, and I'm just going to read several of them. Uh, Matthew 24, 9 through 10 says, Jesus says, they, they will deliver you up to uh, tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated of, by all nations for my name's sake, and many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. We've read that before. Acts 7.11 says, Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. Back uh, you know, in Genesis, that there was a huge famine for Joseph's day. There was a tribulation. Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And when we go through hard times, this word tribulation is not talking about the great tribulation. It's talking about problems we have in life the pressures of life, the persecution of life because of our faith in Jesus, not just because, you know, times are hard, but because we're going through a hard time because of the Lord, that we can't be separated from Jesus. These things, in fact, should draw us closer to him, that we are to identify with the Lord in his sufferings, these things, and we can't identify with him if we've never suffered for him. Even a little, even just like losing a friend or not being the popular one. James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Flips us to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And Hebrews 10.32-33 says, But recall the former days after you were illuminated. You endured a great struggle and sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. There's a fellowship with other believers Unlike anything else, when you've suffered something, suffered something similar to them, it's a loss of a child, it's a loss of a job, or it's going to jail for being a Christian, losing a loved one for being a Christian. But Jesus says that he knows their poverty. And this word is, is meant to convey the deepest of poverty. The word actually means beggary. That they're begging on the street corners that they don't have anything. Wait a minute. This is the church of God? God, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, do that clap thing. But they don't have their needs met. They don't have money in the bank. They're in jail. They're being murdered. Where's God in that? Isn't God supposed to protect them from that? Isn't God supposed to protect you and I from hardship? To some degree, yes. But as believers, our call as to one of persecution. It's a call to be that we're not greater than our master who was called to the cross. That you and I, believer, at some point will be persecuted. Might even be crucified like the apostles were. But he says you're rich. He says, guys, the world says you're poverty. You look at your bank account, you look at the things that you suffer, you go, I got nothing. The wicked have everything. I'm not successful, but God says you are the most successful people I see on earth right now. Because to be successful in a wicked world, 
at some point will mean compromising your faith. And the minute we compromise our faith, I believe we've lost our faith. They weren't rich like those around them, but their physical poverty was not their real wealth. Their real wealth was in hanging on to Jesus, was in what was to come in the reward in heaven. And the Christians of Smyrna knew poverty because they were robbed and fired from their jobs in persecution of the gospel. And if you look at what's happening this past decade and even more in America, business loss, people's businesses tarred and feathered, their reputations shamed because they won't bake a cake for someone because they don't want to be a part of that celebration or they won't photograph it either. And they're not being hateful, they just don't want to go and they don't want to be a part of it. They're not being mean. They're saying, look, I just... It's against my faith. I don't believe in that, and I don't want to help that. They're not calling them names, pointing fingers, dragging them off to jail or to be beaten. In fact, this is the very opposite. They're being kind and gentle and just saying no. But you're not allowed to say no in our day and age. You're not allowed to say that's wrong in our day and age. Chick-fil-A, a very famous Christian business, came under fire for supporting charities that clearly said that homosexuality and the LBGTQ plus is sin. Not that we hate these people, because we don't. They're people, just like you and I. It's sin, just like anything else. But they were pressured, and, and as an organization, they stopped giving to organizations like the Salvation Army and others. They didn't hang up for that persecution. Whether I'm right or wrong or not, I don't know, but I used to be proud of them. I used to want to go buy their food when I was near them. Now I go, I'm not going to support that. So they were afraid of losing the business of the wicked, and they lost the, the business of people who know the righteous. Just because... They gave money to organization that called Sin Sin, not because they gave to a hate group that persecutes anybody. And let's contrast that with Jesus' words to the Laodicean church in Revelation 3, 17 through 18. that says, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see that. He says to that church that you guys think you've got it all together. You're rich physically. You've got all the right connections. You've got the right clothes. But spiritually, you're dirty. Spiritually, you're blind. Spiritually, you're naked. And Jesus goes on to say to the uh, church in Smyrna, that you know the blasphemy of false Jews who are really in the synagogue of Satan, that these Jews who came to know Christ in Smyrna were real. They were real Jews. They were really of faith, but there were many around them who claimed to be Jews, who claimed to know the way, but they were worldly. And truthfully, they were of a synagogue of Satan. And historically, uh, the commentary says that we are told there's a large and hostile community of Jews there but this tells us that a true Jew is not one who trusts God and believes in Jesus Christ. But that's a true Jew. Someone who believes in their Messiah. Others may be Jewish ethnically, 
which still has its place before God, but they are not Jews spiritually before God. I have a respect for anyone who's Jewish and who's Hebrew or Israeli just by birth or by religion. I have a respect for that, but I know that spiritually they haven't come to their Messiah yet. But I respect it because I know that they're God's people and that there's something there that God, that God loves them, but they need Jesus. They're lost without him. But how hard is it even today to say that you're a Christian, a true Christian? Because there are many that say that they are true Christians, but in their lifestyle and deed and beliefs and morals, they are clearly not. And they persecute the church more than any other. Especially like Christian publications these days. They're Christianity Today, say you're Christian. I don't, I don't know. And with this quote, I'm not trying to make an explicit case for homeschooling, saying that you're in sin if you're not homeschooling. I, that's between you and the Lord and whatever you think is the right decision there. But I think at some point this does ring true. And I think of, in light of what we just spoke about, it has a bigger context. And there's this quote that I saved a while ago uh, from someone named Vadi Balcom, And it says, We cannot continue to send our children to Caesar for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans. We send our young, Christian, impressionable kids off to a public school where they're taught wickedness, especially this day and age, maybe not 20, 30, 40 years ago, when it was just, quote-unquote, evolution. But now it's immorality to the nth degree to where they're going to question whether they're even a boy or a girl. And be surprised when they come home and, and question those things. Be surprised when they come home and they're on drugs. Be surprised when they come home and they think they're the opposite gender. We sent them off to be educated in that. And I can't send my kids off to be educated in that. Maybe one day I'll send them off when they're ready to be persecuted, when they're strong in their faith and can discern between truth and a lie. But as Christians, do we find ourselves being spiritually, morally, and ethically educated by the world? And yet we expect to be, in fact, still Christians. Are we little Christs? Are we little Caesars? I need really good pizza. Did I just say that? I'm from the Northeast. I can't say that. I don't have, No, it's been too long. I need real pizza again. But sincerely, if we're going to the world and we're letting Oprah, The View, CNN, Fox News educate us on what's moral, on what's right, on what's true, and we're not letting the Bible tell us where to put our mind on these things, do we look more like Caesar or more like Jesus? I think if we look like Caesar, we're not going to suffer. And when we do come to suffering, we're going to give up. But Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, do not fear what you are about to suffer. He's saying, you're going to suffer something, but you don't have to be afraid of it. Because what they would be suffering would make people fear. On Christmas, ISIS shoots and beheads 11 Christians in Nigeria in revenge for the death of one of their guys. This video shows men in black masks lining up behind blindfolded captives, shooting one and beheading the rest. Nigeria, Africa, 11 Christians murdered on Christmas. We don't really care. If 
I'm ready for the persecution on that one. If that was 11 homosexuals, would we be doing something? If 11 Muslims were beheaded in America, would we be doing something? We don't care. There's a lot going on in the world right now, obviously. And all these corporations in the West and in America are championing sin, putting it in everything, every ad, every movie, every TV show, and they champion it. And then because they love money so much, they'll go to another country where it's outlawed to do those things, and they cut those scenes out. They don't advertise the same things in Saudi Arabia that they do here. They don't really care about your cause. They care about money, and they'll destroy our morality if it means that they stay popular and have the money and stay on the right side of politically correct. But no, they like this, the same thing with them. Jesus reveals who is really the one doing the persecution. I feel like these ads are more persecution than they are championing these things. They're trying to persecute people who know it's wrong and to believe me it's right. But who is at the root of it, Jesus says? The devil himself is going to cast you into prison. The devil is real, and he's really at work in the world. He hates children. He hates Christians. He hates the truth. And if we look at everything that goes on in our world today, what children are being taught, what parents are even doing to their little boys and girls, with psychological influence, with medication and surgery, abortion, persecution, and the blurring of truth so that there's no right or wrong in the world, you have your own truth, tell me who's doing all that. It's obvious, it's the devil, and we are going hand in hand with him into hell. And we are close, guys. Things have never been so dark. I know there have been barbaric times, I know there have been dark ages, but the fact now that the darkness is championing his light, and Jesus, as we've said a million times before, how deep that darkness is if you think it's the light. But Jesus says to them, what's the point of you being, of this all happening, that you'd be tested? You'd be put on trial, in a sense, in front of all those who persecute you. In some sense, that they're doing this, that God might reach those who are doing the persecuting. That they might see that the people they persecute have something real. Like Paul and the other apostles in prison, they don't flee and the guard comes to faith. Stories like Corey Tenboom uh, and her sister, and her sister died, and the Nazi guard or beat them, comes to faith afterwards, finds her afterwards, and asks her to forgive him and comes to faith because she and her sister are persecuted by him. There's countless stories of these things happening. In prison in that day and age, we think of it in our, in our mindset, but prison was not meant to be rehab. It was meant to punish. It was meant to cast someone out of society and keep them away. It was like a death sentence. You were, normally you were thrown into prison just to await trial and eventual execution. You think of others like this Christian pastor recently released in a Muslim country. After being in prison for a few years, for what? For having a Bible and having a book about Jesus. That he was an extremist. He had propaganda. And he was thrown in prison. Look, the, the, our definition in the West has shifted from terrorism and extremism being from uh, 
Muslims who fly planes into buildings. Now it's to quote unquote far right conservatives and they try and lump conservatism in with Nazism and it's not the same. Definitely not the same. The next step, guys, is it's going to be just straight up Christians. Because the only ones who are going to remain conservative are the real Christians. The only ones who are going to see the things happening that are lining up for this end times are going to be the Christians. And Barclay says, For a man to become a Christian anywhere was to become an outlaw. In Smyrna, above all places, for a man to enter a Christian church was literally to take his life in his hands. In Smyrna, the church was a place for heroes. Another guy, Habner, says, the tribulation, This tribulation does not mean common trials to which all flesh is heir. Some dear souls think they are bearing their cross every time they have a headache. The tribulation mentioned here is trouble they would not have if they had not been Christians. Look at China. Even the, the, the state-approved church is starting to get persecuted and crosses removed, let alone the underground church. I have uh, friends who are missionaries over there, and they've told me a few stories over the years. I mean, some of the things that they, their kids have shared with them, how they've had to run from police because they were Christian. But Jesus says you will have this tribulation for 10 days, and there's different opinions on this 10 days. That uh, could be 10 years. Uh, in prophecy, a lot of times a day equates to a year. Um, you know, there's a week of years, there's seven years in, in other areas of Scripture. Uh, others take it to mean ten emperors, and they list the emperors in the in the commentary. Um, uh, still, others take it strange and confusing approaches. One says that others observe that ten days are two hundred forty hours, which make up the number of years from eighty five. So it's like they begin to just try and read into this whole thing. That it could be though that ten days was simply an expression of speech. That ten days was just a short time. You know, it was an expression in their day and age. Oh, it's only ten days. It's just a week. You know, Christians be here before you know it. I think Jesus is saying to them, no matter if it was 10 years, 10, 240 hours, or whatever it was, it'll be over. It'll be over before you know it. And like persecution, even if it is short, I'm sure it feels like a long, long time. And Jesus is encouraging them here that it'll not be forever. Hang on until the end. You know, soldiers are taught how to withstand torture, they're taught methods to resist and not give up state secrets. I think Jesus is trying to do that here for his soldiers. Don't give up. Hang on. That SEAL team is going to rescue you. SEAL team of angels, when you die, they'll bring you home. Reminds me of a soldier in Vietnam who was hostage and he was told to speak a message that everything is okay, but he blinked with his eyes while he was reading Morse code for torture over and over. So he's able to say this message, maintain composed so they don't beat him, and get this message out to the government officials in America watching that he's being tortured and not to believe the message. That's strength. That's honor. And Jesus says, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. That the first death is going to hurt for the persecuted church. You will die at some point if the persecution is strong enough. It wouldn't be a death for these people going quietly in their sleep, dying of old age. It would be a death of being murdered and martyred for their faith. And Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And you and I are not guaranteed an easy life. 
That's all we want in this world is easy life. Buy now, 1999, three easy payments to make your life easier. In fact, we can be sure it's going to be anything but that. And we aren't even guaranteed to be protected from death. In fact, we're guaranteed that we're going to go through it for the persecuted church. In Daniel 3, 17 through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, If that is the case, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, our God, who we serve, when he's threatened to throw them in the fiery furnace, he says, Our God, whom we serve, he is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Knowing that either it's in life or in death. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. That doesn't matter what you do with us, and it doesn't matter if God rescues us or not. We're not going to worship you. We're going to worship God. And our salvation as believers is for eternity. It's protection from the second death, the death to come from hell eternal. It's not meant to give us health, wealth, and prosperity here. Although we might have it, and God, God gives it to us, may we use it properly and use it wisely. But we may be like the church in Smyrna, who's poor, abject poverty. Not because we're irresponsible, not because we're lazy, not because the rich man's keeping you down, but because you refuse to go along with the world and you're a believer and you can't operate in the world system like we're about to see in a few chapters to where no one can operate in the world system and must live in abject poverty without the mark of the beast. I'm not sure how the American church would remain if subjected to the things the Smyrna faces. I don't know how I would fare. I can't say that I would. Any of those things mentioned before, I don't know that I could stand up to those. I pray that God would give me strength to do that and that day and do the right thing, but I don't know that I could. But there are many churches today that are being persecuted in Smyrna, churches in Africa, Asia, the Middle East. But it may not be long until you and I here in America are tasked with not being afraid of the things to which we're about to suffer. And Lord, help us be faithful until death, that we would overcome and not be hurt by the second death. But God, we, we do just lift up those in China and Asia and Africa and all over the world who are suffering for their faith, truly suffering for their faith, not just being made fun of or have to sit alone at work, but those who, we pray for them too, that you give them strength, but we pray for those who have lost loved ones, who are in prison, who are killed, who are on the run, or are homeless, who are poor, who are under threat of being beheaded on video for their faith. God, strengthen them, we pray. Minister them, we pray. Avenge them, we pray. As only you can. In Jesus' name, we love you, God. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until.